Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. This morning we're going to be reading and then stepping through verses 1 through 30. John 4, 1 through 30. So here John writes, beginning in verse 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. But the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. And drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. Again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, this hour, the hour, is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father 
in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am He. Just then, His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We need your help. I am a great sinner. We are great sinners. You are a greater Savior and helper. And so please come and by the grace and power of your Spirit, press the truth of your word into our hearts. Cause anyone lost to be saved. Cause all the saved to be built up in the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you went to get a glass of water only to meet the living Christ and depart with a sort of water that springs eternal in your soul. Happens all the time, right? Uh, Maybe you're recalling just now where you were and what you were doing when you stumbled, so to speak, upon the Savior of the world and were made an heir of divine life. Uh, May it ever be fresh with us. I believe it was the daughter of the late great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones who, when asked about the root of her father's characteristically zealous ministry, she replied very simply to the effect this, that he never, ever got over the gracious fact that Jesus had saved him. Hmm. I hope that'll be true for you and me. Never getting over the fact that Jesus has saved us. Certainly one of the great things our text means to do for us is to rekindle our love for Jesus. It's to find in Him all over again all we most deeply need is to enter into the Son, being about the Father's business, seeking souls like it's all of His meat and all of His drink and all of His life. Seeing how graciously He handles even the sinfulest. It's to be edified by seeing Jesus make a disciple where we would least expect that to happen. So let's come to it, beginning in verse 1, with a general setting here, where we're reminded that Jesus was, in fact, increasing. He was, to a point, we might say, great commissioning. Right? He's making disciples and then overseeing their baptism. And he was becoming increasingly attuned to the fact that the Pharisees were catching wind of his growing popularity. And if they had a problem with John's success, would they not also then have their issues with Jesus? And so Jesus, not wanting to stir up crucifixion-level opposition, ahead of God's appointed time, takes leave of Judea for Galilee, a trip that took them straight through 
Samaria. And we're told then, verse 5, that he came to a Samaritan town near the field that Jacob gifted to his son Joseph. And that verse 6, though it's not found in the Old Testament, Jacob apparently had a well there. And then, John tells us something absolutely fascinating. He tells us that Jesus, who we're so accustomed to going here and there and everywhere, he sat down. And that he did this because he was wearied from the journey. It was almost noon, probably warm out. The text goes on to show that he was both thirsty and hungry. And the reason that this is notable is because to this point, John has labored so much to show us the deity of Jesus. You start back at the prologue, the beginning of John's gospel. What have we seen? We've seen that Jesus is the divine word. We've seen that he is the creator. All was made through him. We've seen that he is the son. The son of the father. He's John's Lord. He's Nathaniel's seer. He is the temple. He's the bridegroom. He's the heavenly one. He's above all. He's the savior. He's God. But, he's God in the flesh, right? He's God incarnate. He's also the man, Christ, Jesus. And as such, He knew what it was better than we do to be both fully and truly human. So, here, while John continues to feature the deity of Christ, he does give us a glimpse of the humanity of Christ, which from the perspective of missions is so very comforting and at the same time challenging. Uh, it's comforting, isn't, isn't it, to see that Christ's passion for souls isn't kept up simply because He's God. And so He never gets tired. <laughs> he's always zealous for it. Uh, he clearly did tire so that we need not be divine to be of any lasting effect in the evangelization of the world. And... Isn't it comforting then to see that He gets us very well when for the sake of souls we have put off meat and we've put off drink and we've put off sleep, right? That when we're tired and worn out from the journey, even by the, the missional stops along the way, Jesus is an able sympathizer with us. He knows how to pray and intercede effectually for us. He knows how to best pick us up and how best to keep us going because He Himself has been wearied in the way. Beloved, isn't it comforting to realize that Jesus is perfectly equipped to minister to our need when, for instance, we're wearied by the spiritual slowness of one that maybe we're discipling? Or by what seems to be the fruitless journeying back and forth there, everywhere, all over the place, in the caring of souls? Or by our wondering, will they fill in the blank ever be saved? Dear ones, we have a dear comforter in Jesus. But now this side of his humanity also challenges us. What if, what if, after we've slept 10 hours solid, that stops after about like the age of 23 or something. We've slept 10 hours solid, and, and had a wonderful cup of coffee, and a hearty breakfast, and all is right in the world, uh, what, what if, even then, 
we will not seek the conversion of a soul. Will we then seek the conversion of a soul when we're wearied? You see, the setting for Christ's evangelization of this woman is his, his weariness. <laughs> he's, he's worn out. But she's lost. He's tired. But her soul needs rest. And so, seeking her salvation takes precedence. And as it does, Jesus, being perfectly understanding with us, yet removes our excuses from us. The entire episode is fronted by the fact that he engages her when we might otherwise take a pass because I'm too tired. We need to feel this morning that an unbeliever's brokenness outweighs our need for a break. That no matter our situation, the unbeliever, their situation is always the most dire. Now, I am all for rest. I told someone the other day, I think I've taken like eight naps in the last ten days. Okay? And Jesus did sit down. But he didn't close up shop. Right? He never closed up shop. So that when a given circumstance proved to be a particular providence, he counted it his food to do his Father's will and seek the conversion of that soul. That was his life. And it's what gave him life. Might I ask then, is this any part of our lives? Well, whether it is or isn't, we have much to learn from Jesus in His making of disciples. So let's just work through the dialogue now and see the Savior of sinners in action, picking up in verse 7. And the first thing we see is probably the most stunning, that He engages her at all. And why is that, you ask? It's because, as John says in verse 9, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, full stop. That's just the beginning. Uh, that, that's to put it in the broadest terms. Here's what I mean. If this had been a man of Samaria, it would have been entirely uncustomary for this Jewish man to engage him. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Now, there was a deep-seated bitterness between them arising from centuries of religious difference and manifest rivalry. And so a strictly observant Jew in particular would avoid any kind of association with a Samaritan for fear of being ritually defiled simply by their presence. That's what's going on here. And needless to say then, asking a favor of a Samaritan to presumably share the same drinking vessel with a Samaritan, would, depending on one's perspective, be either incredibly bold or incredibly careless. Maybe even godless. But, we don't really feel the full brunt of this engagement until we unpack the obvious that as the text provides, this is not a man of Samaria. This is a woman of Samaria. At church, in this day, it was counted a colossal waste of time for a Jewish rabbi to engage a true-born Jewish woman in the way Jesus is going to engage this Samaritan. 
woman. In fact, uh, the editor of one rabbi in that era, commenting on his master's words, wrote this, that he who prolongs conversation with, again, a Jewish woman, brings evil upon himself, ceases from the words of the law, and at last inherits Gehenna. That would be hell. Okay, that's not me, that's the, uh, the commentator here. So, you get it. Even if this were a Samaritan man, it would still be scandalous. And if it were a Jewish woman, it would still be counted, at best, most unwise. But this is a Samaritan woman. And, as Jesus knows, a serially sexually sinful one at that. Just for her ethnicity and gender, she was thought perpetually unclean. She could never approach God. She was condemned. And then you add her life to it, which did actually condemn her, and she's lower, as it were, than hell. Or at least, in their eyes, she had no hope of heaven. And self-righteousness, whatever the basis, is a truly awful thing. And here, it would prohibit what must occur for someone to be saved. And that is a conversation between the Savior and the sinner. Friends, in those words, give me a drink, Jesus is destroying a terrible barrier. In one breath, He is dignifying this woman as worthy of His engagement, while also revealing the purpose of God, which is nothing short of inviting the whole world to be saved. Salvation may come from the Jews, but it's for all the peoples. Whoever trusts in Jesus. She may not be able to approach God on account of her sins, but as we see in Christ, God, who is rich in mercy and gracious in love, will approach her. If only He might have her sins accounted to Him. Jesus is not defiled by his engaging of sinners. To the contrary, whatever he engages like this, he sanctifies and he washes and he cleanses. Do we get this? If there's anyone we think he cannot save, we don't get this as well as we ought to. If there's anyone we're unwilling to engage... We don't as well as we ought to. If we keep to our comfort zones, we don't get this as well as we ought to. If we are in any way partial, we don't get this as well as we ought to. Jesus is the Lamb of God who atones for the world. He's God manifest in His love towards the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. So, to even her surprise, how is it that you ask for me, 
Even to her surprise, he engages her. And he relates to her. She's come to draw water from Jacob's well, and he sees in it, as one put it, a way to get a handle on her mind. And Lord willing, on her heart. So in verse 10, he flips her question his way. What does he say there? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, a far better drink. See what he implies. He implies there is a gift of God, but she doesn't know it. And there is an achiever of it, but she doesn't know him. She has a far greater need than the water she came to draw, but it it eludes her. Jesus is trying to show her the desert of her soul, but not without alluding to a fountain that's ready to flood her and fill her up with life. And about that life, this idea of living water, it's opposite that of standing water. We get the illustration here. It's a stream, right, that's continually new, continually fresh, continually cleansing, instead of like a pond that grows old and impure and distasteful. It's better water. She discerns that much. Though Jesus is talking about all the benefits of the resurrection life that He alone can give her, that fountainhead of grace, which she obviously does not discern at all. See her response in verses 11 and 12. Uh, most think her to be incredulous here. <laughs> so a little more background. Uh, against Jewish belief, the Samaritan Bible included only Genesis through Deuteronomy, first five books. Uh, they did not hold, that is, the Psalms or the Prophets as part of Scripture, as we'll see that Jesus does. And this brief note will help us later, as it does here, uh, to see why she may be so incredulous, why she may be so aghast at what Jesus has said here. Samaritans venerated the patriarchs. Who were the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Moses, who dominated what's called the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so here comes Jesus saying he can give her something better than Jacob, one of those patriarchs. And the implication then is that he is greater than Jacob. And so she's got jokes. Our father Jacob had to dig out this well to give us this water. And will you do better? You don't even have a jar. More, this water here was good enough for him. He even drank from it. And his sons and his livestock too. And will it be of little account to you, sir? If you have better, where on earth can you get it? And I wonder if Jesus smiled there and thought, dear woman, nowhere on earth. See that her ability to discern heavenly truth is same as the trained scribes in Jerusalem, which is to say, not at all. The teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, this woman of Samaria, we all alike need Jesus to alight our hearts. None of us can see. So, 
in that relatable way. He responds, you see there in verses 13 and 14, that he is greater than Jacob. We already know this, don't we? Remember the episode with Nathaniel and Jacob's dream where Jesus is the, the ladder to heaven? And so here we might say that Jesus is the well of heaven. He tells her, everyone who drinks that old well water, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks my water will never thirst again, to be sure, forever. In fact, the water I give will become in a person not a well going down, but a spring welling up to eternal life. Now, what I want us to hear in that is the soul-satisfying indestructibility of the life Jesus promises to give. We all know, being in the South, that after one glass of water in the summer, you go outside for a second, you're going to be thirsty again. It is physically insufficient. But there is no such insufficiency in what Jesus gives our souls, even to all eternity. But more plainly, Jesus gives a salvation that forever meets our deepest needs, longings, and anxieties. It's a salvation that unites us to God. It's a new life that, that can't be destroyed. It's a prevailing awareness of forgiveness and righteousness and peace with God. And so we see here it's true what one said, that the onset of grace is but glory begun. And glory is just grace completed. It's a salvation that cannot fail. It cannot be finally damned and dried up. It is in us and it's guarded by God. 1 Peter 1, remember that? So that see, it can only ever well up into eternal life. There's no other option. And so this is a sure word on the permanence of the gift Christ gives. Now, true, our lives, <laughs> they can be trying, they can be hard, so that it feels like we are lifeless. But, dear Job, this well is deeper still, and this water is livelier still. Indeed, on our deathliest days, all we are in Christ abides the same. Alive and true and incorruptible and available then to raise us up again to that indestructible hope that we have in Christ. Now then, this obviously sounds appealing to her. Just only still at that earthly level. Sir, give me this so I won't be thirsty or need to make this trek again. And so still, she has not discerned her deepest need. It's all about earthly comfort, earthly relief. Jesus can help my body, and who knows, maybe he can hasten retirement. I'm not going to have to go back to the well. I like that Jesus. But beloved, if we don't learn how to move people beyond that, We have not done what Christ would do. 
and what he does here. The text is not over. And I think we need to be aware that this is where some churches, unfortunately, are content to leave things with souls. See there? She asked Christ for his gift. Let's baptize them. And they don't ask why she asked for that. And so many are declared to be saved who have no truer grasp on Jesus than this woman right here at this point in the text. Jesus can give me a better job. He can make my back feel better. Sounds like a good deal. Where can I sign up for that? Where can I sign up for being totally deceived about the state of my soul? Beloved, we obviously desire to care for people's tangible needs. In fact, it's a mark of authentic Christianity, but that is not and cannot be the heart of missions. Jesus advances, you see, to shed light on her sinfulness and to convict her of her sins so that she might begin to truly see herself and Him and the full matter at hand. This is what J.C. Ryle says here. He says, Never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does one see any beauty at all in Christ as a Savior until they discover they are a ruined sinner. Ignorance of sin is invariably attended invariably attended by neglect of Christ. So, Jesus abruptly advances his course. (laughs) He, he, He puts his foot on the gas pedal here. Picking up in verse 16. He charges her, go, call your husband, and come here. And you see, she replies in a way she hopes will, I think, quickly divert a further incursion. I have no husband. And she stops. And again, hopes, I think, that'll be the end of that. (laughs) That she can, in this way, hide her sin and shame. But what she doesn't know won't kill her. Far from it, it will actually save her. And that is this. Jesus knows her. (laughs) Just like He knew Nathaniel. Just like He knows all people. Just like He knows you and me. It's not at all general, you see. It's perfectly personal. Uh, Technically, He's just met her. But He knows everything about her. And notably then, he knows more than the hearts and lives and sinful deep dives of Israelites indeed. This man knows all that about this hedging Samaritan woman. And so, in a gentle but absolutely devastating way, the great bridegroom brings her out into his light. You are right in what you've said. But it's because you've had five husbands. And the man you now have, 
is not your husband. So I agree with you. You've never had a true husband. Gently devastating. For the first time in her life, she's seen herself. She's been exposed. And tried to spare herself, but Jesus won't let her. (laughs) Because He knows He's the only one who can ultimately spare her. He's the only one who can cover her up. But there must then be an uncovering. Here's a woman, bless her heart, saddled with a sin, guilt, and shame. She fights like Hades to keep in the dark. It's a woman, it would seem, greatly damaged from being passed around one guy to the next guy, used but not loved, but still looking right there for all her love and all her care and all her value and all her worth, only to come up absolutely dry. But, what men used and left What they said, I want you for a time, but not till death do us part. Jesus wants forever. If you're familiar with the famous illustration, Matt Chandler made it famous, Jesus wants the trampled rose. And Jesus wants those two who have done the trampling. who have been dark portrayals of what he is. The very best husband. Here, beloved, I want us to see there is none too sinful for this Savior. Our sin is not a repellent to Jesus. It's what draws him in to save us. That's why he came into the world. And if we're following Him, if we're following Him, this church ought to display the most gracious kind of character. We're nothing, you and I. We're nothing if not sinners whom Christ has renewed and saved. And how we ought to be a church then who welcomes the weakest, the vilest, The poor, knowing our sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. Jesus is able to save any in all the world. But perhaps we're ahead of ourselves. I want you to note verse 19. Something has changed. She now perceives Him to be a prophet, is what she says. And that is saying more than we may know. Again, Samaritan Bible... They understood the prophet like Moses. Remember that guy, the prophet like Moses? They understood that guy to be the Christ. Uh, You recall the scribes asked John the Baptist if he was that prophet like Moses, and what did John say? He said, no, I am not. But now, to hear her admit him a prophet, then, is for her to put Jesus, at least it seems, in the realm of messianic possibility. And so it seems what she does is put him to the test if not also to low-key 
uh, move his spotlight off the matter of her sin-devastated life. What would this Jewish prophet have to say about the main point of division between Jews and Samaritans? Now, of course, she's biased. She's a Samaritan. (laughs) And so, at least for now, it's somewhat rigged. Nevertheless, she asks, where is the place of true worship? And again, she thinks she's slick. She says, our fathers, again, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers actually worshipped here on this mountain, Gerizim. Though you say (laughs) we ought to worship in Jerusalem. You hear it? They actually worshipped here, but you say we ought to worship in Jerusalem. Mind you, again, she's only working with the law. No matter, Jesus is rather well-versed in the law, as well as the rest of Scripture. And so he answers. He doesn't roll his eyes at her exit ramp. He, he exhibits what we all need to exhibit, patience. And clarifies things for her. And it is not what she could have expected. He tells her in verses 21 to 24, on the basis of all Scripture, to take him at his word that the hour has now come in him where place is no longer relevant to worship. And to be sure, to be sure, he there addresses the Jewish person as much as the Samaritan or anybody who would tie the practice of worship to a place instead of a person in the hearts of His people. In other words, remember Jesus is the true temple. So that when He came into the world, even Solomon's temple became obsolete. And so also this woman's entire line of questioning has become outdated and outmoded. And she ought to listen to Him because while their fathers may have worshipped where she does, it doesn't alter the fact that even in her Bible... Genesis 49.10, God's salvation is said to come from the Jews. So, the Christ could never be a Samaritan. The Christ was always going to be a Jewish man. And so this sinful Samaritan, if ever she was going to be saved, had to come to trust and receive grace from, oh, I don't know, maybe this Jewish man? What Jesus clarifies is a a different route or a different angle from where he started. God is spirit, he says in verse 24, and thus those who worship God must do so in spirit and in truth What this means contextually is that in order to truly worship God, again, we always need to hear this, to truly worship God, one must first be born again, born of the Spirit, and wed to truth incarnate, Jesus. It demands a new life, and it demands a new family. Again, Father, worshiping the Father. A new family that is heaven-bent on being word-bound. Bound to the Word. So friends, the Father is seeking true worshipers and Christ is the temple so that if ever God would be worshipped, it will only be in and through Jesus. It will only be as He, God's 
greatest self-disclosure is lifted up and listened to and, and finally loved for all that He is. I pray that's what always defines this body of Jesus. Well, Jesus saves best for last, doesn't He? He's engaged her, He's related to her, He's convicted her, and He has now clarified something for her. And she then, on the brink of faith, leads Him perfectly. I know, verse 25, that Messiah is coming, and that when He does, He will tell us all things, and unhesitatingly, Jesus reveals to her I who speak to you am He. And dear ones, He is. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one who's able and willing, and I pray in every case here, has given life from the dead. (laughs) And all that the Bible means by that great word, salvation. Well, you see there in the text, before she can voice another word to him to tip us off on what has happened in her soul, uh, his disciples return with lunch, always punctual. John notes uh, their more customary surprise at finding Jesus doing what we've just unpacked. They do not speak to her, you see that there? They don't speak to her, nor do they quite have the courage yet to question him. (laughs) But that's coming. (laughs) But that doesn't mean we don't get a glimpse, I would say, of the sinner saved. She came all alone to draw water. That was uncustomary. Usually the women would come in groups for safety reasons. She came all alone. We can wonder why. Maybe we don't need to wonder why. She came alone to draw water from Jacob's well. Now what do we see? She puts down her jar and leaves it behind, presumably because she's found Jacob's greater who satisfied her soul. Don't miss it. I I think we can say this sinful woman of Samaria has been saved by Jesus. And so it's not without noting that having left the well, she takes off to town And what she do? She begins inviting people (laughs) left and and right to Jesus by those disciple words, come and see. Come and see. Come see, verse 29, a man who told me all I ever did. You think this could be the Christ? And upon her testimony it says, people began and did not stop coming to Jesus. She becomes exemplary, doesn't she? She becomes exemplary, as one put it, quote, His disciples, who had known Him longer, they went into town and they brought back some loaves. That was all. She went into town and brought back some men. (laughs) She brought back people (laughs) to Jesus. And so the text is really bracketed for us here. We're urged by the Savior's willingness and the saved lady's wellingness. Sorry, couldn't help myself. To make disciples. (laughs) Is that our impulse? Are we heading to town this afternoon 
to bring people to Jesus? Is our new life from Christ contagious? Is His love still fresh with us in a way that is winsome for others? Are we, like she, willing to admit, as she does, of her misdeeds and of her sins, just that we might spotlight for others the vast, vast measure of His grace for all? Well, church, let's be about it. Friend, won't you come to Jesus? I'd remind us, uh, Jesus speaks no grace, but in full view of His cross. There's not a word He says to her, but He knows that's the price of everything I'm saying. He's going to lay down His life and rise again to achieve the salvation this woman has just received. An unbelieving friend, that is where I would point you to. To Christ crucified and to Christ raised. Right there, we're seeing in our text that even the sinfulest may find grace enough for eternal life. Won't you believe in Him this morning? And beloved, you know this. You know all of that. But knowing it. But knowing it. Let's never get over it. (laughs) Let's never get over the gracious fact that Jesus has saved me. Or that He's willing and able to save anyone in all the world. And what a joy. What a joy if by providence we get to be His jar of clay. That He uses, weary as we may be, to pour out His water still and put in a soul the hope that springs eternal. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for it. We thank You for Your grace towards us. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the truth, the story that You've given us this morning. May it have its full effect in a thousand ways in every single one of our hearts and lives, all to your glory, in the advance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.